Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Oliver here. Uh, we have an interview this week with Will Henderson of Ride Report. Will was one of the first employees at Square uh, dealing with payments and then moved up to Portland to found Ride Report on the back of wanting to use data to help build trust between operators and cities, specifically with the aim, very noble in my mind, of helping accelerate the adoption of micromobility. He's deep in the weeds and yet at the same time able to see that kind of massive picture and possibility of micromobility. It's a great conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. But before we get there, this week's sponsor is Twilio. I want to thank them. Shared micromobility, as you know, is a deceptively hard business. You keep losing your connections to those vehicles and soon you will not have a business. And that's where Twilio comes in. It's a global IoT connectivity platform that helps companies like Lime and Skip and Spin and Beam keep their vehicles connected and to cost-effectively scale faster, deploy further and optimize their supply chain. Twilio is also a global market for SMS and phone number verifications to help reduce fraud and improve compliance. Are you an operator? And are you looking for the right global cellular connectivity partner to scale with? Give Twilio a shot. They offer free SIMs and test credit to anybody who's a micromobility podcast listener. Just check out the link in the podcast description for more. But with all that, here is Will. And welcome back to micromobility. Uh, I have with me today, Will Henderson. I am really excited to have you on the podcast. We've been, this has been a long time coming. For context as well, so Will is with Ride Report and employs Michael Naka, who has been on the podcast a couple of times actually, but is totally one of the most knowledgeable people in the space. So I'm just looking forward to having a chance to pick your brain. But I thought maybe the easiest way to start this would be, do you want to just talk us through Ride Report and what the origin story is and kind of what you guys do to give a bit of context? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of my background, I'm sure we'll have a chance to, to dig into some of this stuff if it's relevant. I uh, spent my career in consumer tech, so starting at Apple, and then I was at Square for, for quite a while leading their consumer payments team. And I got into micromobility as an advocate. So I was really excited about micromobility when it was just two wheels and a crank, no motor, no app. No GPS. It's just a bike. <laughs> what is this thing you speak of? <laughs> uh, right. So I would go to my job at Square, you know, where we were growing. We grew from 10 people to 1,000 people in three years and turned this industry upside down, payments. And then I would go home from my day job and then I would go to City Hall and I would fight for literally like five years to try to get a bike rack, you know, the pace was just agonizing. So when I got done at Square, I thought, I don't know how this is going to work, but I've got to do something here, right? There's got to be a role that someone in technology can play at helping cities do better and faster and, and really move the needle here because we need it, right? Congestion and climate change and all these like growing crises demand that we have better options. So that was kind of me right about the time when we started seeing two things, right? There was bike share in China, which is a crazy thing. I'm sure you've covered on this 
on this podcast, you know, the sort of piles of bikes, but also yep. the, the potential, right? Like they went from two or 3% mode share to like Dutch levels of biking in like two or three years. It's amazing. Portland did like 2% to 7% in like 35 years, just to put it in perspective. So that's what was going on in China. You're based in Portland, right? Yeah, exactly. We're based in Portland. So I, I started the company here after leaving the Bay Area, working at Square. And then the other thing that's going on in this country is ride hailing. And I feel like you have to start every conversation about micromobility with ride hailing because it dictates what's going on now. And so when our current, you know, form factor of scooters hit the ground, we were really in the right place at the right time. We saw the potential, not just the potential for a business, but the potential to do something really transformative to city transportation infrastructure. And that's what excites us, right? So our mission is to accelerate micromobility. We're all about taking that potential and making it happen quickly. And the big barrier to that right now is trust, right? It goes back to what was happening in the ride hailing space and you know maybe a larger trend with technology in general. There's not a lot of trust between public entities, especially cities and tech companies. And if you don't have trust, you can't have collaboration around these shared goals of making this micromobility opportunity work. So that's really what we do. We get in the middle of all that and we say, hey, how can we use data and build tools that everybody can use that help recreate that trust and that potential for collaboration around our shared goals? And data has this powerful role to play, right? Because you might not trust another entity, but if you have great data, data that you can trust, you can work with that person, even if you're not sure about, you know, say their motivations or their business model. Totally. And so talk me through what are the, what data do you use and what are the tools that you've been able to build so far? Yeah. So when we first got started, you know, you're using any data that we could get and the data really was kind of uh, spotty, you know, not every company was offering any kind of data sharing. And if they were, it might've been a format that they made up or some city made up. And then of course there was some standards like GBFS that really weren't designed for this use case, weren't even designed for dockless vehicles for that matter. But what we saw pretty early on was the emergence of MDS and we knew there needed to be a standard there. So we got behind that standard and got all, every single city that we work with uses MDS at this point and all of our operating partners use MDS. So we really threw our weight behind that standard. That said, we also have been really engaged on some of the issues with the MDS standard that show off a chance to get into. So we've been all about kind of like this idea that Cities have got to have high quality data in a non-proprietary format that they can trust. But at the same time, there's got to be trust from the operators that that data is going to be treated carefully. It's got sensitive data, competitive data, personal data. And of course, it's not just the companies, it's the actual citizens riding these scooters and bikes. They want to trust that their data is being protected as well. So we think it's really important that that trust gets preserved, even as we you know, have like unprecedented amounts of data available. Absolutely. So talk me through. So you, you mentioned that this is what you've managed to make your foot wall, like encourage the cities that you're working with to actually adopt MDS, which is, we can go into why I think that's interesting in a second. But who are the cities that you're working with? So Ride Report. I'm quite excited. We've got one of your team who's going to be here in New Zealand next week. So I'm going to assume you've got some cities in New Zealand, but who are the other cities that you've got? 
Yeah, so we work with cities all around the world at this point. We've got well over 50 cities who are using Rideport. And then, you know, a lot of those cities have been using Rideport really successfully with a range of different operators. So, you know, some of the cities we work with, Portland obviously is a longtime customer, was our first customer. City of Austin is another fantastic customer that has been with us for well over a year at this point uh, and is, is actually one of the most successful cities in terms of the size and scope of their micromobility program. But then we have smaller cities as well. And then we have, you know, some international cities, a growing presence in New Zealand, which I love and, and Australia as well, and just starting to do some business in the EU as well. So the products that you're typically offering at the moment, as I understand it, is similar to, because we've had uh, Tiffany from Remix and uh, Regina from Populous on the podcast as well, and they were doing kind of a mix of different things. You guys seem to be hyper-focused just on the reporting dashboard at the moment for scooters, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's so interesting because Remix is a company that we've been close with since our, you know, the early days of the company. And I feel like their mission ultimately is extremely complementary to ours. They have this mission around building far better tools so that we can build far better infrastructure. And that is very supportive and close to what we do here at Ride Report. But we've never thought that that's a good focus for us. You know, I think about our background as a team, you know, it's much more in payments, security, and highly available transactional systems. And what that means is we've got a really good background to make sure that we're bringing cities real-time data systems that they can trust. And those systems are not going to provide every tool and every sort of exploratory report that a city might want. But what it is going to provide is peace of mind, right? So that they can sort of get back to the job that they were actually hired for, which is planning the streets and get away from the job that they've been stuck with, which is babysitting the streets. So we think that our position in the market is really about intermediating the relationship where there's no trust, building really, really focused data reporting that reestablishes that trust and then getting out of the way so that micromobility can thrive. Great. So let's dig into NDS and that data, as you say, because, I mean, as we're recording this, the city of LA is being sued by Uber around MDS. And I mean, we've covered MDS a couple of times. We've had David Zipper on the podcast to talk to to that. And anybody who's new to MDS should go back and listen to that episode if you want to kind of get a more in-depth understanding of it. But maybe what we could do is just do a really quick summary of what MDS and why it's important and why you think it's int- like significant. And then I'd love to unpack kind of how are we thinking about the issues that, that are there? Yeah, so gosh, MDS, it's really hard to talk about MDS without getting sucked into the weeds. I guess I'll I'll just say, first of all, MDS is actually, it sounds like one thing, but it's actually like at least two, maybe three things. There's these really different parts of MDS, one of which is called the provider API and the other is called agency. Those are two major pieces. And they actually represent really different capabilities and almost like different visions for what cities should be doing. So the fight that you're seeing between Uber and LA is, it's really kind of a proxy war for control that I think is larger than micromobility, certainly larger than MDS. And and it represents something that I feel like has been simmering since the beginning, right? So our vision and how we use MDS is that 
cities should always have data that they can trust so that they know what's going on in their streets, they can assess compliance, and they also should have the ability to use an API to push out the rules and regulations, the fines and fees that describe their system, right? And that's really important because we don't think that cities want to hire a bunch of people to go around with clipboards and sort of manually assess this. They need a more streamlined and data-driven approach. And technology companies need it as well. Like they are not going to be able to create replicable business models without a standard API and a way to assess compliance that's sort of, you know, real time and and data driven again. So that's really important. And that's at the heart of what we do. However, there's this second part of MBS that I call the track and control model. And that's what MDS agency really is about. And that's about, you know, the vehicle itself while you're riding it or driving it in the case of a car, it's talking directly to the city in real time. And it's essentially saying, here's where I am, here's what I'm doing. And then the city can intervene in real time and say, don't go that way, go this way, or don't go there, or slow down, or whatever, right? And so I think the reasons that LA wants that kind of control are really, really noble, good reasons. Right. They want to be able to do things like close streets so that people can, you know, take over the street for a party or for an event. And they want to be able to do that with an API so that it doesn't cost a bunch of money to issue a permit. And it's not something that's really involved. And they're looking towards a future with like autonomous vehicles, you know, so they're, they're thinking pretty far in the future about that stuff. However, when it comes to privacy, I think it's a deeply flawed model to have individual vehicles reporting their location in real time all the time. And I think it's also deeply flawed to say that just because we want to have one data standard doesn't mean that we should have the same privacy standards for a person on a scooter that we have for a drone, an autonomous drone carrying a package for Amazon. Those are radically different situations in the real world they having la have data about that drone in real time that makes total sense there's no problems but when you're talking about a scooter when you're talking about a motor transportation that we're trying to encourage and you know we want our most vulnerable citizens to be using i just think it's a bad idea to be starting with all the data in real time and you know sort of figure out the privacy stuff later. And I don't want to impute their motives. Again, I think their motives are good. I think Ellie has taken this stand for the right reasons. And they probably believe that they can defend this data, right? But not every city thinks that. And not every city actually feels like they're equipped to handle that kind of data and make sure that it doesn't go into the wrong hands. So it might work for LA, but it's not going to work everywhere. And we've chosen to to sort of stay away from it because we want a model that works everywhere. Now the data, the, the war that LA is fighting with Uber is really, I think about that sort of model. And again, it's not just about what's going on with scooters and bikes. It's about what about, you know, how might this be applied to even ride hailing or in the future autonomous vehicles? Yeah, I mean, I, I had, uh, so before I left Uber, I, I had been involved at the time we were looking at how would blockchain potentially apply to, to Uber? And one of the big things that we had talked about was this idea of if there was ever a marketplace 
that emerged for knowing where all the vehicles were, because in some ways, right, like Uber itself on the ride hailing business, at least, it knows where its vehicles are and then Lyft knows where its vehicles are and taxis kind of in theory sometimes, though not always, uh, know where its vehicles are. But there was nothing that could cross-dispatch all of those systems because they were in those walled gardens of mobility, right? And the, the thing that strategically we could see coming is that if there was a standard, for example, that showed where all the vehicles were at a given time and they were forced to be able to make that information public, then in theory, you could have a marketplace that actually just emerged and all supply in the city would be aggregated, which would work better for the transport system overall because it would end up with a more efficient system. But it's a sort of existential threat I can see for Uber or Lyft or any of these other any of these other marketplaces that have emerged on this stuff. So in some ways, that's why I find it so interesting is that there's this open protocol exists and has the potential for that. And it's funny that it ends up being micromobility where it's the most real implementation that we're actually seeing of, of these things. And yet, I don't think that that's necessary. I, I think there's a long time before we actually see something that would be plausible right like you want to walk down the street and be able to unlock any scooter that you see because like why would you have to own all these different apps you want to be able to have it integrated and you want to have it integrated with your ticketing and you want to be able to say you know that in theory cities should be paying for these scooters they're very beneficial to them in terms of being able to do things like first last mile connections and it would make sense in my world that you're already oftentimes subsidizing the train why not subsidize the people getting to the train as well and it makes the, the whole system work a lot more efficiently. Well, that's where we started, right? I mean, that's that's how bike share began, is it was a publicly subsidized program. That model did work in some cities, but in like 99% of cities, it was impossible. And a lot of cities that where they tried it, it was extremely challenging. Like we saw this firsthand in Portland and Seattle with our bike share systems. We still have bike share via Bike Town in, in Portland, but it covers a much smaller service area than private operators. It's got a much smaller fleet and it's not electric. And then in Seattle, they closed their, their public program altogether. Yeah, and, and were they integrated into the public transit? So in theory, could you walk out and pay for it using the same ticketing system or did you have to buy a whole new system when it worked? Yeah, there wasn't, it wasn't fully integrated. You know, there was like Portland has done some really interesting things with it. They have a thing called a transportation wallet uh, where you can basically get bus, bike town, streetcar and max all in sort of one yearly fee. So a bunch of our employees do that. It's a really great deal. And I think Portland has really been pushing the envelope with, with programs like that. They also made bike town like incredibly cheap to the point where when you're using it as a connective service on the ends of say a bus trip, at least for me, I really don't think about the cost, right? I think it's like seven or eight cents a minute with no unlock fee. So if you're only gonna be on the bike for like five minutes, it's great. But the problem is just, you know, it's not in most of the city and they don't have enough bikes. And so when I think about, should the city subsidize it? Absolutely, in a vacuum, this is one of the best public benefits you could provide, right? It has so many positive externalities, and that's why I've been a bike advocate for as long as I can remember. However, in the real world, the bus and transit is is an instructive sort of almost cautionary tale because we struggle to invest adequate amounts of money in transit as well, especially in operations. You know, we might do like in Portland, we love to do big capital projects around improving the light rail, but the light rail still runs every 20 minutes like it has forever. And that's just during peak hours. And a lot of the buses run once an hour. So 
we're struggling to make world-class systems available with transit. And I don't know why we would think that it would be any easier with micromobility, right? So if you go back and look at like the streetcar network in Portland from like the 1920s, it makes you cry. It ran every 10 minutes and it was far more extensive. It went all over town. I mean, you could take a train out to Mount Hood. You could take a streetcar to every neighborhood and it was cheap and it ran every 10 minutes. And the big difference between then and now was that it was all run via private companies, right? It was only later that it was taken over by the city, really because like the, you know, kind of the business world moved on and didn't want to build businesses around it anymore for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, the public was sort of said, yeah, we'll, we'll take that on and because it's such an important service. But, you know, the, the tale to me is that if you can get it to work, you're not always going to get a system that works in the free market. Like today, we've seen a lot of companies try to do bus service and really struggle with it. But if you can get it to work, it's probably going to be a lot more widely available and a lot easier to scale than if you do it publicly. And the reason for that is that, you know, bike share is just like, it's really hard to get funded, right? And it's really hard to get the program up and running. It took Portland years to get it through city council and like, there's just all these people that come out of the woodwork and oppose it and say, why are you spending money on bikes instead of like my pet issue or instead of police or hospitals or whatever. Building more freeways. Exactly. So this is non-zero sum, right? Like you, you don't have to do any of that. Yeah. And I can totally see that. One of the things I love talking with Michael about is where he thinks the cities are that are doing best practice because... In some ways, right, what we've seen is this really early explosion of micromobility and now cities are sort of like, oh crap, we're finally catching up and we've seen some terrible implementations of the shared micromobility services, which obviously I think are really hamstringing their, the ability of those systems to actually work. And then we've seen some more enabling and that actually I think, you know, there's better for long-term success. I'm really curious, having seen a lot of cities, which ones do you think are doing it well and why are they doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, the worst thing to me, the worst sign is when you see micromobility operators pulling out of a city. That's the most discouraging thing. I've never heard of a city that said, yeah, we're shutting down micromobility because it turns out nobody wants to use it. Never heard that. What I hear is they might shut it down because of safety concerns or because there's it becomes kind of a political football but most often what I hear is that the operators are pulling out because it just doesn't make sense, right? Not because there's no demand for their service, but because the regulatory environment plus all the other challenges that they face with their business model make it so it doesn't pencil out. So, you know, first and foremost, I think cities have got to be thinking about sustainability of these programs. If they want them to continue to exist, They've got to recognize that they have a powerful role in that, right? The way that they regulate, the way that they assess fines and fees plays a big role, probably the biggest role in terms of things they have control over in whether these programs can succeed and, and sustain. So I think there's a little bit of equivocating on that in some cases, and we should just put that front and center, say, hey, you know, we've got to make sure they're safe. We've got to make sure they're equitable. And we've got to make sure that they stick around. So in terms of like how I evaluate the success of 
you know, different cities, programs. Like I just look at the number of trips per day they're able to achieve, maybe per capita if you want to scale it. And that tends to be pretty strongly correlated with the number of vehicles that they have available. And, you know, the cities that we've worked with and the cities that I've looked at, I'd say Austin's the most successful right now, at least in the U.S. They've got a ton of vehicles and they're doing 25, 30,000 trips per day. That's respectable. You know, I think that when I think about the potential, it's far larger, right? I mean, if you want to look at the percentage of trips under five miles in the city of Austin, it's way more than that. You know, it's probably hundreds of thousands of trips that are, you know, should be serviceable by micromobility by that mode. But they're making a meaningful dent in it in their first couple of years of existence. And what I've seen is that they are willing to do more experimentation, especially around the kinds of data and tools that we make available to Austin. They're actually really interested in saying, well, what can we do with this that we couldn't do before? And then they tend not to do things uh, in terms of regulation that can't be data-driven, right? So just as an example, you can have a regulation like don't park it near a bike rack. I've seen that regulation in a lot of cities. Don't park it near a bike rack because they don't want the bike racks to be blocked. Well, if you don't have data on where all those bike racks are, that's not a good policy because you can't enforce it using the data, right? And so Austin's been really good about that. They find things that they can assess using the data and then they experiment with different approaches and our tools to set it up. And then it gives them this like confidence and control so that they can actually relax their cap and offer more vehicles and ultimately results in more trips. Another thing they've done that's really interesting is they've used dynamic caps that are different depending on different regions. So they can draw geofences and they can have dynamic caps that are awarded based on utilization rates, but it's not system-wide utilization rates. It's for different areas. And I think that's really interesting because obviously you're going to get really high utilization rates downtown and you might get totally different utilization rates in like a more, you know, spread out part of town or a part of town that's sort of historically underserved. And so Austin's got the ability to tailor those incentives and tailor the cap region by region. And I think that's really smart. Interesting. So so talk me through that. So it, it's effectively saying in downtown, you can have 400 scooters as long as they go over six trips a day. And then in these other areas, a little bit further out, you can have a thousand scooters, but only if they maintain more than three trips a day. So in theory, right, that's like allowing the market to to be more responsive to actual demand rather than putting some sort of like arbitrary quota cap on the top of things as has been done in a lot of markets. Yeah, exactly. They're creating incentives and they're using those incentives as a way to sort of level the playing field so that you don't get a pig pile of scooters on the most profitable parts of town and then have no scooters in the areas of town that, you know, have never had these services. So I think it's a smart approach, you know, and I think that they've been really willing to experiment both with the zones themselves and the actual like utilization targets so that they you know can sort of react quickly to changing conditions or just you know when their hypothesis is wrong versus a lot of cities that sort of take that stuff and make a really good educated guess and then they bake it into the permit and then if they're wrong or if the conditions change 
it's hard to go back and revisit it without redoing all the permits. So I think that's just, you know, they've been much more experimentation driven. Another thing is I think they've been on the whole more collaborative with operators and they've done really interesting things. Like instead of saying, oh, we're going to limit the number of scooters because they're blocking the sidewalk, they've said, how can we build more on-street scooter parking, right? And so they're building a lot of on-street scooter parking. And I think that's so exciting because they're repurposing the infrastructure and they're showing that it doesn't actually take that much money or that much time to make big changes. So just to confirm that, they're taking on-street car parks, repurposing those, or they're taking parts of the footpath? They're taking on-street car parking, especially on street corners, which I love because if you take a parking space off a street corner, not only are you providing scooter parking, but you're also making it higher visibility for pedestrians and bikes and other vehicles that are trying to get across that intersection. So it has a double benefit, you know? And so to me, it's like a city like Austin or a city like Portland, it wouldn't take long to like make sure that there's a bike and scooter corral on every single corner in the city. And if you do that, I doubt people are going to bike, like park them on the sidewalk every time because they'll always be able to look around and see a designated place for it. And then you actually end up with another benefit, which is that, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you like go up to a scooter and you try to ride it and it's out of batteries or it's not, you know, available. And then you got to walk another half a block or a block and try another one. It's really frustrating. And this is one of the things that docked bikes actually did much better. For whatever reason, the bike's in maintenance. You just go to the next one, bam, you're on it. So it made it a lot more, it made starting a trip a lot more reliable. And so these parking spaces recreate that advantage, which I love. So it has a user benefit too, in other words. Yeah, completely. And I I think you're right as well around this idea of over time, social behavior adapts. I mean, in the same way that today, you don't just randomly park your car anywhere. You park your car in a car parking space because that's where the infrastructure is. And we have developed social process around it. And in theory, there's meant to be some etiquette around, you know, you're driving past and you see a car park. And like, <laughs> yeah, some people bark their cars wherever they want. <laughs> precisely, precisely. But I think as well, it's just that the stuff that a lot of people, I see a lot of people complaining about is oftentimes it's like, oh, there's so much street clutter. And it's like, well, it is, but this is an entirely solvable problem. It's not rocket science. Uh, So I I think it's really interesting to have data kind of inform that around where the most intelligent places for that would be. And over time, we will adapt. The social acceptance of where to park these things will just become, no, you go and park them in a corral because of course you do. I'd love to talk to you a bit about this idea as well of mobility as a service, because I think One of the things that I've most enjoyed in this conversation with others, Regina and Tiffany as well, is, you know, okay, you guys have now got the basic data standards and theory. We're starting to build this, the kind of the underpinnings of what will eventually become this interoperable internet of mobility where all of these things can connect. And that's where it goes from being, okay, it's interesting that you've got electric bikes that get used like this as a privately owned vehicle to being this supercharged, incredibly valuable mesh network that helps make mobility work across that whole city with lots of different types of vehicles that are well suited. What are the building blocks that you think need to be there? And I mean, I know your background's at Square as well. And I know that there are probably a bunch of parallels, you know, in terms of how you've thought about payments and going into, you know, you're building a new ecosystem in some ways of interoperability. 
Yeah, no, it's just a lot of parallels. And I think back to like before Square and Stripe and a couple of other companies got in here and started, you know, creating modern payment systems. If you wanted to build like an app that did payments, like Uber, for example, Uber has to do payments. Or it could have been something really simple, like you wanted to just build like a podcast where you could subscribe with your credit card. You would never be able to do that unless you had like tons of money and tons of time because you would have to go and figure out how to work with the banks and all the financial regulations that apply there. And then you have to build like a PCI compliant payment stack, which is hard, trust me. And then you would have to figure out, okay, well, I have this new like flow where you can enter your credit card. And so I've got like my podcast app for my podcast that no one else has ever heard of. And I got to convince them to like, trust me enough to put their credit card in. And they're, they're going to be like, no, I'm not doing that. Right. Even Uber in the early days, you wouldn't have given your credit card to this random company called Uber. So what Square did and, and Stripe and others is they got in there and, you know, they built this whole stack and they figured out all the hard problems. And then they made it so an entrepreneur building an app that involved payments could just like integrate three lines of code and then they're done. Right. And then, you know, the, the user of the app is like, oh, they're using Stripe, you know, so I can just enter my credit card and it's safe. Or maybe I don't even have to enter it because it's already there. Or like you go into a store and they're using Square and you're like, oh, they're using Square. I can trust them. Even if the merchant seems a little bit sketchy. It's Square. I know it's going to be easy. I know it's going to be safe. Versus like 10 years ago where you would walk in and, you know, they would have like the little like knuckle buster machine where you're like, oh my God, I'm not giving you my credit card. Right. So that's where we are today with mobility is like we're back then. You like go up to a scooter and like it's kind of like the knuckle buster. You're like, I don't know if I want to ride that thing. Is it safe? Is it permitted? Is it got a battery? Which app do I have to install? How much does it cost? I hear people all the time now who are like, talking about how much more expensive a trip was than they expected because the scooter companies all have really different rates and they're kind of hard to understand sometimes. So you can easily have a scooter trip that costs more than a ride hailing trip. It happens. So this is all kind of like reminiscent of the early days of credit cards. And then you have the mobility companies who are like trying to figure out how to deal with regulation and they don't really know Unless they have lots of money, they can't muscle their way through it. And if they manage to get through it in one city, they go to another city and everything's different. So that reminds me a lot of like, you know, again, if you tried to start that app before Stripe, before Square. And, you know, one of the things that was missing fundamentally was was trust. Like you didn't trust a random merchant with your credit card. And the random merchant was positive that they were getting ripped off by the bank. So they would like try to pretend like they didn't accept credit cards because they didn't want to pay the fee. And then the bank was positive that the merchant was probably a scammer and that they shouldn't trust them anyway. So like there was this huge deficit of trust. And now Square is like, you know, you can trust that you can pay easily and safely and the merchants know exactly what the fees are and then the banks have learned that even a taco truck or you know a hairdresser or something like that they actually can be trusted with credit cards as well so that's amazing progress and i think you know you've got to start with trust in this space as well 
So we've got to restore the ability for cities to work with technology mobility companies in a way that where trust is, you know, possible. And, you know, there's not a lot in common between cities and technology companies, but there's also not a lot in common between banks and, you know, taco trucks. But if they figured out how to work together using Square, I'm pretty sure that we can help cities and operators work together from a place of trust. So I think about that a lot. You know, I think we have the right team for it. And I think my own background has helped with this. Just like saying, how can we earn everybody's trust? How can we be the company that deserves that trust? And then build systems that are always about promoting it. And, you know, when I think about mobility as a service, you know, to me, it's it's like a lot of the conversation is about sort of going straight there and like, you know, going straight to the service. But it doesn't really start with the service. It's like you say, you got to start with the building blocks. And so how do we get to the point where things like payments could become such a major building block for apps like Uber? Well, you had to have these basic systems that allowed everyone onto the system, you know, allowed any sort of any person, any merchant, any developer to get started really quickly and get enough trust so that they could get onto the system. So it's similar here. You know, I'm like, I don't think that much about how can we integrate you know, micromobility with the bus or how can we integrate the fare for Uber with the fare for Lime? What I think about is how can we start with trust? And then once we have trust, how can we build more fluidity into the system by just building better and better APIs? And if we can do that and we can make it so that anybody with a new idea can come on really quickly and start working with cities and start working with whatever their idea is on the streets. I just have a lot of faith that mobility as a service will kind of build itself, you know, because entrepreneurs will build it. Right. And it won't necessarily be some giant behemoth thing. It'll just be a series of interconnected via API services. Just like payments, right? Payments, you've got like MasterCard and Visa and all these different banks and like all these different ways you can pay and that somehow it all works together, right? And I think mobility is a similar thing. Like once you have enough fluidity in the market, once you have enough fluidity in the technical systems that work together, you're going to get entrepreneurs who are coming up with new ways, new services and new ways to bundle services on top of that platform. But you're not gonna be able to dream it up in advance. And I don't think that any one you know, entity, whether it's the government or Amazon or Uber, I don't think that we should put one entity in charge of sort of designing the whole system from the top down. I think we wanna create a system where there's just a lot of fluidity. And to me, I look at simple things like GTFS, which is the transit specification that powers apps like Transit. And Transit's like this incredible app. I can open up Transit and they're probably the closest to delivering on this idea of mobility as a service. You know, they've got all these different transit options that work in one app and it works in almost every city I go to. It's amazing. But the thing that had to exist before that was the standard, right? The GTFS standard. So, you know, we don't have anything like that. We have GBFS for discovering vehicles, you know, where's the scooter, but we don't have anything like that for 
unlocking the vehicle, riding the vehicle. We don't have anything like that for riding the bus. <laughs> you can find out when the bus comes, but increasingly people aren't paying with cash anymore. They're paying with their phone. So there is, you know, there isn't an API around that right now. So there's a lot of work to do to like make those things connectable. So then I beg the question, say for example, you were put in touch in charge of LADOT or the, the Open Mobility Foundation. What would you be doing to make that a reality? I mean, is it those guys that do it or is it entrepreneurs who are going to build that stuff? You don't think it's going to necessarily come from an organization like that? No, I think that cities have a powerful role, which is to incentivize the creation and implementation of standards, right? And so LA, to their credit, had an enormous role, a central role in developing and promoting MDS, right? We would not have MDS without LA and it probably would be a nightmare right now probably wouldn't be anything like MDS, right? So the fact that they were able to put this together and then get enough cities to start being aware of it and encouraging those cities to require it of all the operators, that's what allowed us to be where we are today. So I think the trick is we need to keep developing standards and pushing them into the regulatory requirements but because there's so much power in those regulatory requirements, we need to make sure that the standards are developed in a way that's a little bit more holistic and I think a little less centralized. And so you're starting to see this with like OMF. When OMF was created, I wondered what it was going to look like. And of course, a lot of our cities joined OMF. Just for clarity as well, OMF is the Open Mobility Foundation, which was the move by LADOT to take MDS out of just being with LADOT and being into a kind of a, a like a kind of a coalition of what, 20 cities or something across the US? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that clarification. Sometimes I just stream ahead and assume everyone has context for stuff like this. No, no. Same with me. And I'm aware not everybody is going to follow exactly what we're talking about. So, yeah. But it's been really cool seeing OMF's work so far. I think they've brought in a lot of new voices and they've they've took MDS into some new directions that I think are really encouraging and start to address, especially uh, some of the privacy issues that we've been voicing for a long time. However, MDS is really just about, and OMF's you know mandate is really about the data that is flowing for regulatory purposes. There's not a standards body right now talking about the data that is flowing for citizens. So it's just starting. GBFS, you know, which was kind of like like hacked basically to support dockless vehicles. There's just started NABSA, which is the North American Bike Share Association, has just started a effort to basically create a similar kind of governing structure for GBFS. And that to me is, is the kind of step we need if we want to see the standardization on that side of things that would power things like mobility as a service. So early days, but it's encouraging, you know, and I think if we see those improvements to GBFS, it'll start to really unlock some of these new ideas around trip bundling and connecting trips and stuff like that. Yeah, cool. 
Excellent. Well, look, I'm aware we're running up on time. So I have one just final question for you, which is, so Ride Report, you guys have obviously just done a recent raise. I'm really curious about how entrepreneurs who are building in this space, what was the appetite like from investors, you know, in terms of ensuring that there's vibrancy in the capital markets, because it's kind of waning a little bit with operators, but there seems to be that like everybody gets that micromobility is going to be a big thing. For entrepreneurs who are thinking about building in this space, how have you found that that journey? Yeah, so I mean... I'll be honest, like I think funding for micromobility companies and in general has tightened quite a bit. And so there's a few reasons for it. You know, like there's a pullback right now in particular with things like WeWork. What do you mean you don't make money and won't make money for 50 years, you know? (laughs) Yeah, they're not going to do that anymore. They want to see where's the revenue and they want to see an early stage. So that's one thing that I think entrepreneurs have to be aware of, particularly entrepreneurs who are working in mobility. Then you add on top of that the particular skepticism that I think operators have had to face after Uber and Lyft's IPO. You know, Uber and Lyft had like 15 years on the clock to try to get to profitability. And, you know, investors are just not going to give newer mobility companies that kind of time and that kind of money to get there. So I think that's the second thing. And I, and I think micromobility kind of has always had that headwind since the beginning, but it's, it's more acute now that you know, we've actually seen the Uber and Lyft IPOs and there continues to be pretty strong headwinds for them. And then the third thing is just like anything that involves working with governments or regulation is a hard sell for investors because they don't understand it. And what they've heard about it is that it's really difficult slow and won't make any money (laughs) so we always had trouble finding investors who had comfort with companies like ours that said no we, we do think that there's a business to be built around working with cities and we think cities have this really important and growing role and that there needs to be tools for them right so those investors do exist but there are defined and I think the best way you can win them over is by, you know, showing an attention to what's your business model and ideally showing early revenue and traction with your with your idea. And, you know, it could be that the right approach for someone that's starting in, in micromobility especially is to just stay with angels and, you know, focus on bootstrapping or using angel money as long as you can. Because the nice thing about micromobility is it's got an amazing positive social outcome. So if you can get the early believers who are motivated by that and get them to back your company while you're figuring out how to make the business work, you know, that might be a better approach than trying to go out with a lot of unproven ideas and get the appetite of investors who are currently kind of pretty skeptical and and skittish. But of course, our investors are great. And I think it speaks to the strength of homebrew and urban innovation two of our three major investors, they both have a thesis and a focus that I think makes them equipped for really getting what we do and also being excited by it. And then of course our our other investor, Better Ventures is a social impact investor. So they get it at that level as well. So I think you find the right investors, there's still, you can still make it work, but the longer you can put that off and, and, you know, focus on the fundamentals, the better. Awesome. So if folks want to track you down, how would they do that, Will? Well, you know, I just quit Twitter, so I'm no longer on Twitter. You can't find me there. You can find our website, which is ridereport.com. And 
in the future, I'll probably have a blog or something, but you know, I'm a hard man to find on the internet. That said, if you come to Portland, you will see me riding my bike around all over town. So you should just do it that way. Yeah, cool. Nice. In which case then, I just want to say thank you. It's been great to chat and you're definitely one of the most knowledgeable people in the space and you're really kind of, you're in it and it's fun to to jam and hopefully we didn't lose the audience too much with uh, some of the more nerdiness aspects of what we chatted about. You need footnotes on this episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, look, our audience is very well informed and we've, we've been very lucky to have kind of be able to go through this journey with them as we've been exploring the space and learning more about it and what matters. And I think that you're, you're talking about all the things that they're familiar with. Excellent. Well, look, thanks so much, Will. And uh, we'll hopefully catch you soon and we'll have you on the podcast at some point in the future. Cool. Thank you so much, Oliver. Cheers. See ya.